This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. It all depends upon your appetite. I'll meet you anytime. So, do you get it, Carol? Scenes from an Italian restaurant? I may be blonde, but I'm not that blonde. <laughs> Can I also mention, speaking of scenes from an Italian restaurant, have you seen the Billy Joel show at Madison Square Garden? I have. It's Phenomenal. unbelievable. Phenomenal. I had a blast. Anyway, brings the house down. Yes. Anyway, all right. The reason, scenes from an Italian restaurant, we're talking about Darden restaurants. Now, yes. people here at Darden restaurants are like, I don't know what that is. All but the salad you, know what, you can eat, all the you know breadsticks. What, what they do know is the Olive Garden. <laughs> so we're going to talk about it. We're going to bring in Jennifer Bartashus, senior U.S. retail staples and restaurants analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone from BI headquarters down in Princeton. And Stephen Anderson, senior restaurant and consumer analyst for Maxim Group, joining us on the phone from here in New York City. Uh, All right. So Olive Garden, they're doing very well, apparently, Jennifer. Tell us about it. Yeah, so... What we're seeing is really the the aggregation of a lot of effort over the last four years um, coming together and people really responding to the menu, to the service, um, and rediscovering their love for Olive Garden. So the love for Olive Garden, Stephen, what did it go away? Why didn't why didn't people love it for some time? Well, I I think the Olive Garden has had to go back to its roots of providing value for customers, but they've. Uh, They've established that in the last, uh, as it was mentioned, three to four years ago. But what's happened in the last uh, two to three years is that they've really uh, ramped up their efforts in off-premise, which has really been the locomotive for growth in casual dining over the past year or so. Uh, if they're going where the customers are, and I think this is something a hard lesson that the casual dining companies have had to learn. What do you mean, going where the customers are? Well, by that I mean uh, trying to uh, make their... Uh, offerings more palatable to the uh, yeah yeah okay uh, more palatable to the uh, to um, to customers and uh, you know whether it comes to improved packaging or trying to uh, have more established uh, areas to pick up the items uh, that's what I mean and you know certainly with Italian uh, cuisine uh, with pasta sandwiches being a very easy to uh, carry uh, and it really appeals to Olive Garden strength. I have to say, I've had the tour of Italy at the Olive Garden. My dad kind of liked going there. And yeah. so I've had it many times, a little bit of everything. What's interesting, and Stephen, we know you weren't just taking a break to eat some food there. We were having some technical glitches, and we just wanted to make sure we could hear you clearly. Um, so I don't know. So we see the, the, the share price um, rallying, Jennifer. Does this tell us anything more about the fast casual space overall? We've seen, yeah, we've seen some of the companies... Um, have a little bit more tr- you know, difficulty in sustaining their momentum in recent years. But in casual dining, there have been a couple of very bright spots, um, and Darden is one of those. Uh, Texas Roadhouse would be another casual dining chain that's been doing especially well. 
but it really is only those companies that are executing really well, having good value on their menu, and delivering really good customer service that are able to kind of hold off some of those fast casual competitors. Because apparently one of the restaurants in their portfolio or the chains that's not doing so well, I, I have to confess, I had not heard of this one, Cheddar's. Maybe that's part of the problem if I haven't heard of it. Right. Uh, they're not doing so well. Tell us about that uh, business. So the, the Cheddar's chain, um, you probably haven't heard of it in, in the New York area, mostly because it's a regional chain. Um, but it's a very value-focused chain. It's family-oriented, um, and it gives customers a lot of value for, the, for their buck when they go in. And one of the challenges Darden has had is that they're trying to bring that chain onto all of their standard operating processes and procedures. Um, and that's been taking a little bit longer than expected. Uh, at the same time, they've had a little bit of trouble uh, just finding the right people to run the chain for them. Now, the two biggest franchises, um, from what I understand some of our analysis to, are pulling most of the weight, Longhorn Steakhouse and Capital Grill. Uh, and they also showed some good numbers. Um, Stephen, are you comfortable with the mix that we're seeing uh, at Olive Garden uh, and Darden Restaurant? Not Olive Garden, forgive me. Darden Restaurant. You've got breadsticks on the brain. I do. Well, I consider that Olive Garden comprises just about a little over half of the company's total sales. What Darn was looking for, and when it made the Cheddar's acquisition, uh, you know that is uh, that at the time was considered a growth concept. And uh, you know what has happened over the last few quarters is that uh, they've had to do things like recalibrate menu pricing uh, and uh, try to get the right staff, try to integrate systems. And during that time, uh, there's been you know five straight quarters of uh, same restaurant sales declines. And I think the challenging thing is uh, if we can try to get that uh, from negative to positive. Then we could start seeing the unit growth again. But I think in investors' minds, uh, that's where I think the primary concern lies with DRI at this point. It's such an interesting company. It's such an interesting window into uh, into the broader economy. You yeah. know, there's a private equity angle here, of course. I'm always, always. going to bring it in, uh, Carol. And I remember uh, when Outback was owned by uh, private equity firms. I mean, this is a very investable space in a lot of ways, in part because they do, when they're working, they throw off a lot of cash. Right. Expansion of a franchise is relatively easy. There's a lot of appetite, dare I say it, uh, for these types of brands. Um, so I guess what I'm going to wonder, uh, Jennifer, if you had, I don't know, a couple minutes with uh, the company's CEO, what would be the number one thing you'd want to ask? Just got about 30 seconds here. So I really want to would would want to talk to them about where they see casual dining evolving in the future. Um, Darden's doing great stuff with regards to um, off-premise purchases, or people come and pick it up. They're very anti-delivery at the moment. Um, but really, where is the evolution of this entire format going, and and how can they stay profitable and exciting to customers in the future? Very good. All right. Well, thank you both so much, Jennifer Bartushis, Senior U.S. Retail Staples and Restaurant Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence down at BI in Princeton, Stephen Anderson, Senior Restaurant and Consumer Analyst at the Maxim Group. I'm just joining us on the phone. I used to go to an Olive Garden years ago because my dad kind of liked it. And on a Saturday night, you could wait an hour and a half to it get is jumping. a table. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a happening place. Yeah, absolutely. Just like we are. Yeah, exactly. It's all happening uh, here at Bloomberg Business Week. You are listening to Jason Kelly and Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. And that's why everybody wants a piece of the action. 
talk about IPO action. We are live from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio here in New York City. Jackie Kelly back with us, America's IPO leader at Ernst & Young, here with us uh, in our studio. Uh, nice to have you back with us. The IPO market, we were teasing Jason and myself um, about our cover story in the magazine last week that talked about how it's been the most boring you know, market out there. There's so much cash sloshing around that companies can stay public and that IPOs are down. But they are up this year from last year. Tell me about the kind of activity that you are seeing specifically. Yeah, Carol, and it, it's been overwhelming actually recently yeah. how much activity is happening and how many companies are actually preparing to go public. Before and, the end of the year? Well, I think we'll see a lot of it trail into next year, frankly. So a lot of this is the readiness activities, making plans to get on file, you know, kind of all those steps that need to take place, getting their bankers hired, et cetera. But this is really ramping up right now. What kind of companies? Can I just ask? What kind of companies? So, yeah. So as far as number types of companies, um, lots and lots in the healthcare sector. Uh, technology still, I think they're going to be dominating the capital raised here. But we're really seeing across the board. I mean, we're back. Consumers back. Uh, energy, definitely folks are playing in the energy space, real estate, um, financial services, especially fintech. So really there's opportunities for everybody. So what was the catalyst here? Because I feel like as I've talked to our colleagues who look after this over the past couple years, I'm not saying they've been bored, but they haven't been hair on fire like they were. And like it sounds like you guys are starting to be. Yeah, and so, you know, it's really interesting. So I think there's a little bit of, well, some of the companies are more mature, yep. right? So that's driving part of it. And so we're going to see those unicorns coming out this year. I'm absolutely convinced 2019 is going to be our year of the unicorn. So you're thinking Uber? We'll see who all makes it, but there's a lot of companies at, in She's that She's not going to commit. No. <laughs> oh, I know, Sorry. I know. There's a lot of things that anyway. have to, the stars have to align on a lot of things, but I think we're going to see definitely a bunch of, um, uh, of unicorns come out. But the other thing is, I think there is a little bit, I don't want to call it a frenzy, but, you know, definitely folks are worried about our good time's going to continue to last. Yeah. And I think they're saying... I feel like it's going to be here through the mid or end of next year, but I'm not feeling certain that these good times, these record high equity markets are going to continue. So good times you mean by healthy equity markets to healthy come into? Healthy equity markets, low volatility, really strong performance of recent IPOs. Will that continue? And that, that foundation we have right now is phenomenal. What's the reason for companies now deciding to go public? Because I think about... You know, go back a few years, Jason. I felt like if it was a startup we were talking to a new business, that was almost like the second or third question we'd ask them. So when are you going to go public? And we've kind of gotten away. I certainly have gotten away from asking that. What are, though, the reasons for companies now going public today? Um, I, two things. So we've got, you know, if you're talking about the you know, smaller life sciences, biotech and things like that. It's about getting cash in the door to fund businesses. And so it's growth capital and things like that. But I think a lot of this, especially in the larger size deals, these are private equity and venture-backed deals where mm -hmm. investors want to start to see liquidity. So they're starting those processes that may not actually happen at the IPO. Some will get that some of that liquidity. They want to make some money on their investments. They want to make money while they've got the chance to do it. Well, I, I, I knew that's where we were going to end up. I love it. <laughs> I kind of um, teed it up for you. Uh, you saying. did. You did. It was, yeah. it was nicely done. Um, but part of it is, you know, you were saying, I mean, one of the, one of the tip-offs, uh, Jackie, was that you were saying you're spending a lot more time in Northern California these days. And that obviously is the, the center of all this. But there are some pretty itchy VCs, I have to think, who have put money to work and seen, you know, not just Series D rounds, but it feels like, like Series F and beyond rounds as companies have been able to just raise more and more money on the private side and not had to tap 
the public markets. Right. And, I, and you know, and I think we're sort of at record highs as far as like number of VC-backed companies yeah. out there, number of PE-backed companies. Mm-hmm. And when I start to see that, and we've actually seen some of the trends around this, now we're starting into kind of some of these roll-up transactions yeah. again. Do you guys, you know, when you get too many out there, now let's bundle them and package them. So I bet you'll see some of these package deals come out too. And those will be big IPOs. Those are big IPOs. That's right. That's right. And what, whether we see them this year or over the next couple of years, but they're starting to bundle some of these companies together because they hold so many portfolio companies. And so on a standalone basis, does it have the same value as a big package deal? Probably not. Hey, one last question. Is there any urgency? We've had different market guests coming on and saying, you know, it might be a couple of years before we have some trouble in this economic and market environment. Any urgency to get things done soon because of worries about increased market volatility or a different market environment? Just got about 30 yeah, seconds. Yeah, so we're talking, yeah, we're talking to clients about this now. I think there is definitely a concern about, like, am I getting ready soon enough? So we're saying, start mm. getting ready. You don't necessarily have to pull the trigger. That's the great thing about this. You can also go into confidential filing process and nobody knows. So, uh, <laughs> so many options these days, which is fantastic. Good Awesome. Stuff. Jackie Kelly, a very cool Jay Kelly, America's IPO leader, also an amazing title. Ernst & Young joining us in our studio here in New York City. I love talking about this stuff. IPOs, as you can tell a little bit. I know. Number of IPOs up 12% globally, according to Bloomberg data, and up 29% in North America alone compared to the year before. So we are seeing more activity, as, Jay, as Jackie mentioned. Great conversation. More to come, I am sure. New sensations in the form of technology continuing to evolve, innovation out there. It's interesting, at a time when some say it's kind of maybe time to pull back on some of the FANG stocks in the tech sector, others like our next guest are continuing to find opportunities in innovation and technology. Let's get into the specific approach and strategy. Dan Chung is with us, CEO and Chief Investment Officer at the independent investment management uh, company, Alger. $27.9 billion in assets under management. Joining us here in New York. Nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Welcome. Thank you. So. When you look at the tech sector, and you do hear some people saying, you know, the valuations are a little crazy, it's time to push up, push back, um, what's your opinion on all of that? Well, first, from a high-level perspective, the technology sector is very diverse. So there are some parts that are more highly valued than others. Um, on average, interestingly, the if you look at the 20-year average for the tech sector, it's actually only just slightly above its average. Now, how is that possible? We have come, we come from, we've come from a very, very low valuation in a, you know, very bearish market on, and it's taken a long time to recover, just like our economy has. But at this point, economy has recovered and is doing quite well, and I think there's a lot of more room to run in, in the tech sector. Generally speaking. Generally speaking. Right. Well, and and what. I'm fascinated by is that you take a very, shall we say, holistic view of technology in the sense that you really, it it seems, think of it as an enabler of a lot of what we might think of as more traditional industries, whether that's healthcare or media or retail. It, It touches all of those things. Where is it making the most impact, especially as you think through an investor's lens? Right, so that's a great point, and one that we've been focused on. So at Alger, we're we're bottoms up uh, investors, which means we have a large uh, specialist analyst team. It's actually over fifty people in the team looking at every sector. And one of the things that is striking about today's economy and has been uh, happening for a while, something we call Internet 3.0, which is essentially that technology has become really the main 
driver of capital spending. It is what businesses are spending on. It's not so much more about hard, hard machines or real estate, really, but it's about investing in technology to drive their businesses. Is it smart spending, though? Because I bring that in where people say, okay, tons of data out there, but we've really got to figure out how to use it in a smart way. It's not just a case of accumulating a lot of data is a good thing for our company, our business, or our industry. It's taking that data, you know, whether through AI or machine learning, and making it productive and actionable information. Right, and I think what we're experiencing today and the success of a lot of technology companies today is that the end customers, whether they're consumers, small businesses, or large businesses, are really seeing the benefits of investing in this technology. So, you know, and the examples are across all industries. So in healthcare, for example, um, there is a lot going on in terms of using the genetic research that's been, you know, two decades uh, of, of, of development, but use, now using that data to be able to improve clinical results, to improve the efficiency of clinical trials, right. to try to find and discover new drugs and even design them to uh, be more targeted to uh, treat various diseases. And that, that's all driven by two technologies here, genetics, but also, of course, the analysis, the data crunching, it's all, it's computing technology and data. Can you drill down a little bit? Because I'm just curious what companies that you look at specifically that you find interesting. Who's doing stuff that you think, wow, you know, investors should be looking at? I don't know how much you can drill down. <laughs> <laughs> I can drill down a lot, but I would, I, I, what I guess that I would point to would be, um, you know, if you look at healthcare, uh, people usually think about drug companies and they think about the big med tech companies. Um, and they often forget to look at an interesting side su subsector, which is called health healthcare technology. And okay. there's not that many companies in the sector, but most of them are essentially software companies that are, uh, are developing vertical, ver deep vertical expertise and helping their customers across. Which is what we had actually a guest on yesterday. Yeah. yeah. So, so what angle do you find interesting beyond those software companies? Well, see, so the interesting thing about software, so first of all, software is, um, uh, rel is, is of course, one of the fastest growth areas within technology. It's been growing 10% a year since the early 1980s. That is well over two times the growth uh, in, in our economy. Um, and, and, you know, whether you go at the very top, you know, the big companies that are rolling on, like, of course, Microsoft, or as, the, as, as companies that are much more specific, i.e. these healthcare-focused ones, but you're finding really software embedded everywhere. So, for example, the biggest, you know, in the consumer, the biggest uh, taxi company in the world is, is basically Uber, right? Mm -hmm. And Uber is not a taxi company, really. It's a software company that connects drivers and their cars with people who want to get lifts. It's an app. It's an app. <laughs> so I'm glad you mentioned cars because I feel like we are talking every day and in mm -hmm. almost every issue of Bloomberg Business Week uh, that we dig into about the future of driverless cars. It, there's no industry or few industries that have been disrupted and maybe as publicly disrupted. We have a story in this week's issue about Toyota and their approach. Tesla is a company we talk about every day. How is that space investable through this internet 3.0 lens? Well, so we've looked at, first of all, the leaders in the, uh, the autonomous driving technologies and the mapping technologies. So uh, Waymo is one mm -hmm. of the leaders. It's private, but of course it's private. And, uh, uh, and it's Alphabet. And Alpha, it's owned by <laughs> Alphabet. It's owned by Alphabet. Um, you can look, of course, also at the auto companies. Um, lots of investments that they have and things that haven't yet come public, but probably will. Uh, Lyft, Uber, 
Yeah. Um, we are looking also at, uh, for example, within uh, uh, the trend is not only autonomous; it's also going. To, it's so who's going to be who's going to provide the chips? Right. So the leading you know leading uh, chip providers for AI and machine learning are right up front there, uh, and also um, this is also coming alongside um, electric vehicles. Um, and so it's uh, the battery. Well, it's a whole different well, ecosystem, well, right? It's a I different mean, ecosystem. Yeah. Wait, okay. Since you brought up electric vehicles and we're talking self-driving, Tesla, yeah. how does this fit into it? We've got about 45, 50 seconds left. Well, With- Tesla is obviously highly controversial today. Right. Uh, having very little to do, with, unfortunately, Dan Chung with the is a king of understatement. Would you count <laughs> them out yet or no? I would not count them out. Clearly, they have electric vehicles and they have... A lot of experience with autonomous driving and of course the you know kind of um, uh, right ahead of fully autonomous is semi-autonomous or you know uh, assisted driving right. right and they're doing that is a lot of data they're collecting correct and, it, and that's useful data on you know what the real world looks like and how do you avoid and limit accidents and how do you do uh, all of that on driving. so i would not i absolutely wouldn't count them out they have a, they have a lot of technology there which is interesting, which is the Toyota story that's yeah. in the magazine this week is specifically saying Toyota's kind of making the bet on uh, self-driving cars that it's not that people want to give up driving. So we're going to assist them, make it safer. And at the same time, we're going to collect a ton of information on you. So um, that's an interesting story to catch everybody uh, this week. Dan Chung, thank you so much. CEO, Chief Investment Officer at Alger, $27.9 billion in assets under management, joining us here in New York. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. And this is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week Live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And yes, it is time for the drive to the close. Jimmy Cox, managing partner at Harris Financial Group, back with us. $750 million in assets under management on the phone from Richmond, Virginia. Jamie, in this environment uh, where you see what the Dow and the S&P hitting another record high, how do you see it? Because, I don't know, go back a couple of weeks, go back a month ago, we were all kind of freaked out about emerging markets and a trade war and thought, okay, that's it maybe potentially for the financial markets, and here we are. Well, not only that, Carol, I mean, look at uh – Look at the look at the yield on the tr- on the ten-year Treasury being you know three point oh six to three point oh nine. I mean, just yeah. six months ago, people said if the if the yield on the Treasury went beyond three percent, that that would be the death of stocks, and it's just not not happening. So How do you explain it? How do you explain I, that? I, it, the U.S. economy is very strong. It has been strong. It hasn't weakened at all through all of the trade you know negotiations, war, whatever you want to call it, and stocks are starting to. You know, having to reprice that the economy isn't going to or doesn't seem to be uh, falling off at all, even though that, you know, most people would have thought that there would be negative impacts of tariffs hasn't happened yet. And if the U.S. economy continues to power forward and other economies as well, then stock prices are going to march on higher. So it's just a it's just a function of economic output, not necessarily what we think is going to happen, what actually is happening. Um, People have plenty of jobs. There's no 
There's, it doesn't seem like there's any any fall off in any of the major sectors, you know, industrial production, and that's really supportive of earnings. It's supportive of future stock prices being higher, and that's basically what we're saying. And so, with the trade discussions of the trade worries, Jamie, did did people, and I would put a lot of the media in that category, just get it wrong? Do we predict what the ultimate impact would be, or or were people too soon uh, to worry about it? What do you think has happened so far or not happened? I think the market discounted what the potential problems were going to be or potential prices of or the price discounts of tariffs earlier in the year. Mm. And so, you know, we, we do this terminal pricing type thing now where it's you, you move the needle as far as you think it will go immediately, and then you work your way back. And I think that's essentially what we're the, – the sort of the phase that we're in is that now that the tariffs are actually implemented in large measure, that we're starting to work back to what the, the, uh, the cost is actually going to be. So I think it's more a function of the way we – the way markets price things. Now, used to be, you know, 10 years ago, you would sort of price as you go. You would, you would wait until something actually happened and then right. price it. Now everything is – happens quickly. All right. I hate this risk on, risk off, but let's just go there. So, I mean, Jamie, are you in a risk on uh, situation at this point? Are you putting more money to work? Are you putting new money into riskier assets? How do you play it? Well, I think it's where you put it. Uh, I mean, over the past six or eight months, emerging markets have absolutely been pummeled. Mm-hmm. And so if, if the U.S. dollar tapers off here a little bit, emerging markets are the place that I think most people should be you know, deploying new capital. I think the the U.S. markets are going to find a difficult time moving markedly forward, and the and the value opportunity for most investors is going to be found outside the U.S., in particular in emerging markets. Because just like in the U.S., companies that are based in Asia, India, places like that, they have similar earnings, but those earnings have been masked when you translate them back to dollars through that U.S. dollar currency exchange. And as the dollar tails off those emerging markets are going to snap back the quickest and the the highest return profile exists there. And in emerging markets, technology is a place that you like, I believe? Yes. I mean, emerging markets has always been, you know, sort of talked about as an energy story. But that's not really the place where I believe, if you look at Reliant Energies and Reliant Enterprises in India or C-Trip in China, some of these companies have remarkable earnings, remarkable future earnings opportunities, and they're being lumped in with the the, the negative things that you see in maybe Argentina and Venezuela. So they're sort of, if you look at the emerging market indices that include all of these places, you can you can find the technology you know sleeve to be the most uh, most valuable, and I think people would be wise to take a look at it. Jamie, is there something to say to the point that? News, frustrations with companies, frustrations with individual markets at this point, when the, the news gets out there pretty quickly, whether through social media, through the rise of activist investors. And so the market kind of shakes things out pretty quickly. I think about Bitcoin, how quickly that's kind of gone through our market. I look at the cannabis stocks and how that's kind of quickly working its way. I'm not saying it's all over, um, but it just seems to, it feels like cycles, um, things work their way. The bad news in particular, the concerns work their way through the markets uh, much more quickly. Do you see that? We got about 40 seconds here. Yeah, absolutely. That And that's a good thing. I, what used to take months and sometimes years to sort of materialize actually happens because the, the free flow of information is, 
you know, it's the democratization of information has actually helped markets be more efficient. And and I think that that will help investors over time. So I, I agree 100 percent. I think that's the right way to look at it. And that, what that means for individual investors is don't react. You know, you most of the things will be over with by the time you could do your trades. Jamie Cox is managing partner at Harris Financial Group, overseeing about $750 million. Joining us on the phone from Richmond, Virginia. It's yeah. a good good discussion about kind of where people are going. I especially yeah. like the point about emerging market technology, because that's not a place where people's heads normally go. Like Jamie was saying, people go to energy, people obviously play uh, currencies, but this but idea of technology I, I find really interesting. Well, how often do we read a story and it's an emerging market that they're figuring out a good fix for a problem because they have to? You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.